Welcome to all of our listener. My name is Joe Neal. My brother from another mother, but the same grandmother, Jason Mark, will be with us tonight, but uh, not in his normal manifestation. We'll explain that in a bit. Tonight we will be celebrating Halloween again, and we will be celebrating Christmas, which is not yet here. I'll do my best to explain that too. Prepare yourself for a very bizarre holiday experience. Prepare yourself for Just Be Cousins. So Jason is traveling. Um, he is on the road, and I am on my porch with my infant son, Oliver Christ. We just call him Nate, and uh, my asshole dog, Jesus Barking Christ. And the plan is to basically do an audiobook, uh, but do a, a musical audiobook. Um, there will be readings from short stories written by Jason Mark. Uh, from a collection entitled Still Life with Zombie. These are zombie stories, and they're very funny. I'm uh, delighted to present these to you. Um, but we're going to be mixing in a little bit of holiday music, obscenitized for your amusement. Uh, I, I feel like these two things combined will be completely confusing. And uh, if you make it through 15 minutes of it, bless your heart. I figured we're right between Christmas and Halloween, so let's just celebrate both of them. Without further bullshit, I present to you the Just Becausein's Hallowed Christmas Wiener Special, an undead musical audiobook. Here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, right upon Mrs. Claus' face. Big tits swinging, Santa cocks bringing all the pussy pounded pain. Splooge is flinging from his dingling, and he'll keep going all night. Bitches are flocking to his cocking, cause Santa Claus fucks just right. Slurp my balls, slurp my balls. It's blowjob time. filthy Christmas music to bring you a story of a flesh-eating zombie climbing the Empire State Building. 
<clears throat> a flesh-eating zombie climbs the Empire State Building by Jason Mark. Hey, kid, what you reading? David was on the bus. It's It pays to enrich your word power from Reader's Digest, as well as the summer 1996 Victoria's Secret catalog and a fanzine for the Atari 2600. Well, that's a brainful. The bum went back to sleep. The bus rocked and rolled through the Memphis night like a bullet. It rocketed from Los Angeles to New York on old Route 66. Tired of reading, even though he was literally dead and therefore not able to produce serotonin, the chemical responsible for the sleep state in Homo sapiens's brains is... David put the magazines on the vacant seat next to him and closed his eyes. His head bounced on the vibrating bus windows as he didn't sleep, because he couldn't. Buses always smell like urinals. It's the sweat, said Father Blarney Pierre. David Hasselhoff, not his real name, was in Littleton, England, visiting the burial site of Marco Polo. Many people believe that Marco Polo, the explorer who discovered pasta in the East and later became immortalized in the Olympic swimming event bearing his name, was buried in Italy, or Portugal, or even China. One person actually believes he was buried in Arizona, confusing his remains with old London Bridge. But he was buried in Littleton, England, under the Catholic Church altar. For it is the law of Christ that no church can be built that does not possess a holy relic. That's why the Catholics invented saints. Otherwise, holy relics would be hard to come by. St. Peter's bones, in fact, are more widespread throughout the world in church altars than even the most ambitiously distributed evil parts of any Vanquish the Vampire endeavor. David wanted to make a joke about pews and P.U., but he held his tongue. He was on a class trip, after all, and in a church, and Susan McGillicuddy was nearby. That's three strikes. This cathedral saw a full worship service every Sunday for the past 400 years, no matter how hot it was outside, Father Pierre continued, mopping his brow with a holy-looking handkerchief. And over here is the very fountain of holy water used to banish the flesh-eating zombies from the parish when they attacked in 1693. Gosh, David allowed himself to say. It was a very terrible thing to be impressed on this school trip. Paid for by a contest that his school had won, the pace of nonchalance had been set early by Kyle Wintergreen, who said, upon hearing that they had won and that the second 30 smartest kids in school were going, the top 30 smartest were going to Washington, D.C. for a future Problem Solvers of America tournament, paying their own way, of course. Yeah, I've been to England before, and it became cool to not care much. On the plane ride... Susan McGillicuddy, who believed she was the only authority on this trip since her name was Irish or Scottish or something, and they were British states after all, confided to David that she wasn't at all impressed with the difference between the way English people and American people refer to their television sets, and secretly she was certain the whole class would giggle or gawk the first time they heard someone call it a telly. This story was originally going to be called The Flesh-Eating Zombie Climbs the Empire State Building, but it had to be changed when it was discovered that more than one flesh-eating zombie, F-E-Z, had already climbed such a building. And this is a good thing, for the two V's are somewhat cumbersome. Another perspective title was just one word taken from the above, like Climb or Zombie. 
but it was rejected out of a desire to go back to the old school, the day when titles were not miniature essays or works of art, then subject to a minimalist movement like all derivative art is, but were instead just identifiers for the piece that they named. David reached a finger into the bowl to show how unimpressed he was, and carefully smeared a good deal of the greenish ghoul residue on his fingertip. Now be very careful with that, my son, as it has been suggested that the very source of the evil which animated those zombies so many years ago resides still in that sludge. The good father crossed himself continuously throughout his speech. David shrugged. He looked over at Susan, at her knockers, then absentmindedly flicked the stuff at a wall, where it hit a microbe, which turned into a zombie microbe, then ate the flesh of other microbes for about one minute, which is how long microbes live anyway. Susan looked back at him. She wasn't at all impressed. And she was so happy that she wasn't that she just thought the world of David. There would be sneaking around between the boys' and girls' rooms tonight, an exchange of underwear, maybe even third base. Who boy? It's great to be 15. Hey, kid. What? Did you learn any words? No. The dawn was trying its best to go back to bed, but the bus relentlessly pursued it through the Bible Belt. What word you on now? Pultritudinous. What's it mean? I don't know. What's it say? Beautiful. Well, there you go. Nope. Why not? I'm dead. So what? So I can't learn anything. Why not? Brain can't change. It's decaying. Well, if Plato or Socrates or whoever it was was right, and we know everything before we're born, but the shock of birth makes us forget, maybe as your brain decays, you'll reveal areas of your mind unattainable before. Well, that's still not learning. Well, it is, but in a relative sense. Everything's relative, huh? David said, sighing, looking as wistfully off into the dawn as he could, being without eyebrows, which had rotted away pretty quickly at the beginning. Of course, for example, the fact that you're a flesh-eating zombie should be very freaky to me, but then again, I am a homeless person and also psychotic enough to bend spoons, if you catch my meaning. David leaned very, very close to the bum, so close he would have been able to smell him if he had been able. How did you know I eat flesh? The symptoms that would later prove to mean that David was a flesh-eating zombie began to occur that same night. After a quick lick-me-feel-you-in-the-bathroom-at-the-Waddle-Smith Inn, David and Susan, both very much not excited about the whole thing, to the point of pale skin and at least one sigh and two yawns per minute, went back to their rooms to tell anyone who cared, no one, what had happened. "'Did you at least get a boner?' asked the requisite nerd, who was pretty much in awe of everything, even shoelaces." Nah, said David, bored, flipping pages on a German-language Gideon Bible. For no reason, he certainly had no itch, he scratched his forehead, and one of his eyebrows came off. Gideon, coincidence, looked over and said, Lost one of your eyebrows, cuz, nonplussed. Huh? David replied. David stood at the base of the Empire State Building. His legs were torn in a few places, and he had big black spots on his chest. His t-shirt, ripped for good effect by a truck stop whore in Des Moines, Kentucky. There's a Tallahassee, Kentucky, and a Minneapolis, Kentucky, too. He wanted to pay her for her trouble, 
but she explained that she had a degree in fashion design from a school in Dallas, Texas, and that ripping t-shirts for a fashion designer was like Lincoln Logs for an architect. The evil that had eaten away at his soul as it did his skin coursed through what was left of David's muscles, and he flexed his hands. Savagely, bored, he drove one fist into the concrete of the building's base and was pleased that it went in with an eerie dry squelch. Why are you reading the Victoria's Secret catalog, then? asked the bum. They were outside reading, named after the Monopoly Railroad. David shrugged. I'm not sure. I hate Letitia Costa. Why is that? She's kind of plump, and when her teeth show, they're all gaps and round edges. Blah. Is that any reason to hate someone? Do you even know her? I don't need to apologize to you, said David, biting into a piece of Kentucky Fried Chicken, Ohio. You're a bum. I'm a zombie. This is a Greyhound bus. I had to kill a man for this ticket. They would never let me on a plane. The bum blinked. Why not? Uh, I don't know, David said. He opened up the Atari 2600 fanzine. Letitia Costa wasn't even a Victoria's Secret model in 1996. When Dr. L. Hasbro, writer and director of A Flesh-Eating, set out to tell the story of David, he set himself an almost impossible goal. Producer Estefan States explains, Hasbro was always something of a purist, of a musculature, if you will. He decided at the beginning that for A Flesh-Eating, he would write only one word per day. When we heard this, we were, uh, needless to say, well, I won't then. But anyway, we begged him to at least ignore articles and pronouns and helping verbs, but he insisted. I remember in a meeting after he'd been working for a few months. Let me see, we were at Flanagan's Restaurant in Pasadena. And I think his alma mater was on the Rose Bowl that year. Well, I said, why not count as the one word a day only those words which could be capitalized in a title? But he wouldn't have any of it. And you know what? Well, it's one word per day, no break for Christmas, 4th of July, birthday, even a 5,000-word story would take more than 15 years. But Hasbro managed to finish it in only nine months. When States is challenged that this is clearly impossible, he replies, Impossible? Man, that's art. At the top of the Empire State Building, David stood. Most of his putrid flesh from the wrist to the elbow had been ripped away, revealing rotted forearms, muscles, running over with maggots and mealworms. Gross. He looked at the city beneath him. The trip home from England, the bus ride, the three-hour climb, the sheer force of will that was a zombie's only source of energy, aside from the evil, of course, had accomplished this. It was the year 2000. January 18th, about two in the morning. God changed the universe, like the clock on the TV when you're watching soccer. The people of the earth had got it wrong by about 18 days. God the ref had the correct time. Computers were safe, but God made all the evil in the world go away. David crumpled into a pile of dust. Jennifer Love Hewitt, Melissa Joan Hart, and Cuba Gooding Jr. died at the same moment. But that was a coincidence. They weren't evil or anything. Folks, the bus driver said over the intercom, even though his regular voice could be heard at the same time, if you'll look out the left side of the bus, you'll see the world's largest family reunion gathering, the Gregories. 
They meet here in Wichita County every five years, and the celebration is so big, they appropriate the town's electricity, meaning we won't be stopping at the Stuckies for our dinner break. However, the good Gregory's always agree to allow us to partake of their massive potluck dinner, and sorry for the inconvenience. The bus stopped. David shuffled off. The bum sat down in the seat across the aisle from David. Hey there, kid. How's it going? Fine, David said. Where are you headed? The Big Apple. Yeah, me too. The bum was silent for a second. Ain't you kind of young to be traveling alone? I'm 15. Is that legal? I don't think it matters, David said. I'm a zombie. Yeah, I had all of them childhood diseases, the bum said, leaning back in his seat, getting good and comfortable. Depression, narcolepsy, rickets, chicken pox. Being a zombie isn't really a disease, David explained. It's more of a condition or a lifestyle, I guess. We got a long ride, kid. You can explain it to me all the way. The bum went to sleep. The Empire State Building has been called many things. The Big Apple's Big Banana. Tallest building in the world. New York City's middle finger. The whore's penis. It has been mentioned in 17 major works of literature, 32 minor works of literature, and 217 insignificant works of literature. This story, an F-E-Z climbs the E-S-B, hopes to score one for each category. Would you like a Snapple? asked Marty Gregory of the Craig County Gregories. No, thanks. How about a nice piece of fudge? I'm fine, really. A piece of celery with peanut butter in it? No, thank you, ma'am. They're really yummy. That's nice, but mostly I just eat flesh. Oh, I'm sorry. The Daily City Gregories are vegetarians. Well, that wouldn't really be... Oh, I know. Edmund Gregory and his grandkids are all allergic to nuts. Maybe they have some flesh. Actually, I'm not really hungry at all. All right, sweetie, but you be sure to sign up for our horseshoe tournament. I think the bus is leaving soon, ma'am, but thanks. Remember, it's better to throw from the side, not the bottom. Marty Gregory mimed an example for him. Okay, thanks. David's hand moved like machinery. Pow! Into the side of the Empire State Building. Squelch! The other hand comes out. His legs, too, were digging right in and pushing him higher and higher. He tried switching from punches to claws and was pleased by the result. So why is a flesh-eating zombie going to New York City? Asked the bum. He was the only one who would talk to David, who was the only one who would talk to the bum. To climb the Empire State Building. I did that once. The bum chewed on the inside of his cheek for a moment. Cost five bucks just to ride the elevator. They won't let folks on the stairs anymore. No, I'm going to climb the outside. What for? It's like this. David squinted his eyes. You ever watch those zombie movies? Sure. Loved them. Did they eat flesh? Yes, they did. The bum nodded his head gravely. Why? Well, the ones in The Return of the Living Dead claimed that eating brains made the pain of being dead go away. But that's the brains. I'm a flesh-eating zombie. Okay. So, why? David squinted harder. I don't know. There you go. David's voice matched the bum's exactly. Neither do I. In a very quiet voice, the bum said, I thought you said you couldn't remember anything. 
He curled his lip. He had perfectly straight white teeth. Remember what? David said, just as quietly. Zombie movies. Who said I remember them? Then why'd you ask? It wasn't rhetorical. You weren't using the Socratic method? Fuck no, David explained. The bum smiled, in a regular voice. On the plane back to the States, David switched seats so he could sit next to Susan. Wanna make out? No thanks, she said. Wanna turn off the lights? Feel each other up? Nah, not really. Oh, Davy, you're so hot. He grabbed her hand and put it on his cheek. Oh my god, you're ice cold. Check this out. He reached into his mouth, pulled out a molar. Smell this. Gross. Yup, I'm dead. Ew. Susan smacked her gum and perused the in-flight magazine crossword puzzle. Three across. Paltritudinous. Nine letters. Must have been that sludge. Want to go steady? Okay, but I have to go climb the Empire State Building. Okay. El Hasbro wrote almost 15 different endings for an F-E-Z climbs the E-S-B, none of which were used for this version. Critics called the endings the final word in English literature, a grand finale of sorts. What happens to good stories? An ending. And one critic even went so far as to say, when there is nothing left to say, that's where these endings go. They end. Would you please go away? But baby, it's date rape time. Get the fuck out my face. But baby, my name's Weinstein. Your welcome's worn The thin. roofies have not kicked in. In my sick I'm mind. feeling a little dizzy. Soon I'll be getting busy. I'm falling face first on you the floor. You won't remember anything more. Call 911. The evil plan has just begun. I just wanna fucking go my home. My ding dong just fell out of Get my your room. Mitts off my tits. Baby, it's Cosby time. What the fuck is this shit? Baby, my name's Weinstein. Say what's in this dream? What the fuck do you think? Maybe it's Cosby time. <laughs> Honey, it really must be cold outside. Look at that thing. Woo. Oh. We now interrupt this very rapey Christmas music to bring you a story about a zombie who was struck by lightning. <clears throat> a Resurrection by Jason Mark as read without medical incident by the Reverend Dr. Robert Matthews Bolism III, Esquire, a.k.a. Stroke and Bob. Exactly one year to the day that Malice was simultaneously hit by a train, hit by a car, hit by three or four bullets, and hit by lightning, and hit by a lethal case of botulism, Malice woke up in his coffin. He opened his eyes, and then he tried to sit up, and he hit his head. Ow, he said. Fuck, he said. I'm buried, he said. He thought about it for a while. I guess I'd better try to get out of here, he thought. Then he thought about it some more. Where is here? 
It occurred to him that he knew more than he used to know, like he knew he had been dead, and he knew why. Train, car, bullet, lightning, botulism. And he even knew that he wouldn't know why he was dead, since it killed him while it was happening. And he knew he should not know why he was not dead anymore, but he knew he did not know why. And he knew he was in a coffin, and that, conveniently, part of it was broken, and that, of course, it was the way he would have to get out. So he started, and boy, it was tough. It was really hard getting out of that coffin. He started by kicking at the broken parts, and continued as the broken part grew, until he was able to start hitting it with his fist, until he could grab part of the wood. He was able to get some room above him to pull at the cement interment block, and begin to scrabble at the packed earth. The more he dug, the more the dirt began to fall down around him and he began to work his way upward. But once he was able to stand all the way up, the earth was pretty well much all around him, and he said, Damn it, and he died again. The next day, exactly one day later, he woke up again. He said, Fuck, and damn it, and damn a few more times, and started to dig again. When his hand broke the surface, he sort of knew it was not nighttime, and that what it looked like out there was not like in the movies or on the TV when the buried person digs their way out of the ground, out of the grave. It was full daylight, and it was like Tuesday or something, and yes, it was a graveyard, and yes, there was a headstone. Here lies Malice Reagan. 1971 to 2008. Brother, son, husband. I was never married, he thought. In 2002, or maybe 2001, Malice had written a paper that attempted to show how voodoo was an inauthentic religious experience. Based on the ingredients of its rituals, the component parts of the various talismans and doodads, potions, packets of pieces, parts used in incantations, spells, and so forth. The paper showed how the elements of these objects were basically what could be found in garbage, and given the various oaths and curses your average sanitation engineer mutters when slinging trash from bin to truck to dump, the fact that voodoo-like activities did not spontaneously pop up around trash collectors was more or less proof that there was no such thing as magic. In his paper, Malice spelled spontaneously as S-P-A-W-N-taneously. But by a happy coincidence, the same garbage man picked up the same assortment of old bones and chicken fat and said the same curses two days in a row, one of which brought Malice back from the dead, and the other of which brought him back again. Malice Reagan was a zombie, but not just any old zombie, or maybe he was just an old zombie, but he was his own zombie. He knew that he had been hit by a train, a car, 
three or four bullets, and lightning, and a case of botulism, but he did not know which one for sure had actually killed him. Really, when he thought about it, shuffling and then walking like a normal person out of the cemetery, what killed a man was lack of oxygen to the brain as a result of a stroke or a heart attack or blood loss or head trauma or failed breathing, all via various and variable reasons. So he knew the train would have killed him all by itself, and so would have the car, and so would have the bullets, and so would have the lightning, and so would have the botulism. So, I'm a zombie, he thought, too. I guess I'd better go eat somebody's brains. It had been your typical gray day. He had been walking under darkening skies in late afternoon. He had been near the railroad tracks in the rougher part of town. A thunderclap had caused a driver to swerve, hitting him into an oncoming train, which made the engineer throw the brakes, setting up a magnetic field shift around the electric engine, drawing lightning to where malice was flying through the air at the moment, right into the path of three or four stray bullets, just as the various botulism chemicals caused his stomach to burst. An altogether messy death. And so Malice set out, walking around, trying to decide what to do. It was another typical gray day, except for the whole being a zombie thing. He tried to decide where to go. He didn't really feel like eating brains. He wasn't especially hungry. Not knowing how he knew, he knew his stomach was more or less useless now, anyway. The botulism had got it good. His spine, too, was more or less worthless, thanks to the train. His arm felt weird, like if he tried to play tennis or foosball, he wouldn't do very well, and teenagers might laugh at him. That had been the car, and one of his eyes was permanently wide open, thanks to the lightning and he could feel the bullets, three or four of them, rattling around in his chest. Nice shot, he would have said, if he had thought they'd been on purpose, and they had not been at him. Clearly, Malice thought, as he walked out of the cemetery and into town, clearly there's a god, and I was supposed to be dead. There's too much coincidence to car-train-lightning-bullet botulism. Maybe my death, he considered, looking both ways very, very carefully as he crossed a railroad track. Maybe my death was one of those points in history where the various threads of free will sort of have to come together all of a sudden. Destiny or something. And just as clearly, he thought, or tried to think, because the sun was shining in his eyes, that voodoo nonsense meant it was also destiny that I'd be brought back from the dead. He stopped and looked up. How in the hell can the sun be shining in my eyes when the sky is gray? This suddenly made him very sad. So Malice walked into town, 
This was either an old part of town that didn't need to expand anymore, or a new part of town that had not expanded yet, since the cemetery was on the outskirts. They stick their dead, they stick us, on the edge, where they don't have to deal with us. And then they get all cramped up, and move in on our turf, and everything gets gentrified, and they won't bury folks there no more. This made Malice angry. He tried to swing his good arm at a pretty blonde who was walking by. Brains, he said. Creep, she said, dodging his arm and walking away. Malice found that he took no satisfaction in realizing his death and zombiehood was his destiny. He found a chair outside a cafe, tried to sit down, but ended up just sort of sloppily perched on one arm. He wanted to think about this. This sucks, clearly, but it's not so bad. I don't know what I want to do right now, but I don't know either if I want to have something to want. Across the street through a barber shop window, an old man and a guy holding the biggest pair of scissors he'd ever seen in his life looked at him, seemed to say something, and then looked up at a TV and seemed to say something else. Malice stood up and walked on. At the corner of one street and another, he came to a building with boarded-up windows. His head was buzzing. A tiny part of him considered the possibility of trying to break into the building. I will break in, find a cozy corner, and stand there. That might be a good idea. Suddenly, one of the boards fell out and Malice realized the buzzing sound in his head had been some kind of saw. Some dude in a hard hat poked his head out and looked around. Malice tried to say brains, but the head disappeared before he could get the word out. God damn it, Malice thought, and shuffled on. Because he was shuffling for sure now, at first he had been able to correct the shuffle, but now he had a good rhythm going. He wasn't sure where he was headed. He wanted to find a place to think, but thinking was becoming more difficult. Doing, though, seemed easy enough. He came to a park bench and tried to sit down again. The old man who'd been sitting there got up and out of his way as Malice sort of fell onto the bench. Brains, Malice muttered, as the man brushed birdseed off his coat and hobbled away. Half on, half off the bench, Malice tried to think about this situation while he struggled to stand up again. Through the slats of the park bench, he could see a cat eating at the remains of a dead bird. But Malice simply could not get his mind to focus. He could think of things, but not think about things. Here he was, a zombie, shuffling along. And why? Leibniz said that nothing simply happens, that everything has a purpose. But does that purpose have anything to do with me? 
Hegel would have said that's a question impossible to answer, because universal purpose can't make sense from the perspective of the individual, so clearly Malice was not going to ever understand why he was a goddamn zombie. Kierkegaard said, screw that, mofo. I am full of angst precisely because I can't see why the universe is torturing me. Schopenhauer, of course, would have told Malice that life is suffering, whether you know why or not. So if you don't like the zombie business, buddy, then that's proof you're alive. Malice giggled at this, though, thinking, yeah, and to Schopenhauer, Descartes the zombie would have said, oh, really? I stink, therefore I am? Maybe. At this point, Heidegger would have chimed in and insisted that as far as destiny goes, zombiehood is almost kind of nirvana, since life was just a state of being dead eventually. Hume would have said some bullcrap about destiny be damned, look at the facts, and Wittgenstein would have said, what the hell do you mean, zombie, and why are you letting all these words confuse the issue in the first place? Malice finally got to his feet again and managed to get moving. It was no good. His mind simply was unable to process thoughts. Old, dead, white dudes had been eaten at his brain for far too long, and there was nothing left. Out of the corner of his good eye, Malice recognized a torn shirt, a dirty pair of pants, and an odd shuffling gait. It was another zombie, so he decided to follow it. At the edge of the park, they encountered another zombie, this one a woman. A beautiful woman, actually. Her hair was mottled and thick with dirt and a few dead worms. Her skin a deep purplish gray with open sores in a few spots, and she had a long, shapely bone sticking out of her upper thigh. Brains, Malice whispered, and had a revelation. He could regain the ability to think about all of this, being a zombie, being alive, being human, God, destiny, fate, the rising price of gasoline, sex, drugs, rock and roll. He could stick it all back in his head just by eating someone else's brains. Well, duh. It was that simple. They continued to shuffle as more zombies joined them, their progress slow but inexorable. As night fell, a full moon rose, fat with the juices of fear, leached out of cavemen a million years ago, who used to stare at the damn thing and wonder if it was what gave them birth or if it was going to kill them. Eventually, Malice and the zombies came across an isolated farmhouse. He knew there were some people trapped inside there. He could smell them. The zombies decided to move toward the house, maybe try to break in. It seemed like a pretty good idea. You've got Hannibal Lecter, the Joker, and Satan, Ebenezer Scrooge, and the Grinch who stole Christmas. But do you recall the most 
most insidious dickhead of all. Daryl the Christmas jackass received some very thoughtful gifts. But then when he unwrapped them, he didn't seem to give two shits. All of his butthurt loved ones grew tired of all the guilt and shame. So they conspired to kill him in a very special way. Then one fucking Christmas Eve, Carrie came to say, I declare as Daryl's wife, off with Daryl's head tonight. Then at the execution, the family shouted out with glee, the beheading of the Christmas jackass, an annual ceremony. Good job ruining Christmas, Daryl. We now interrupt this terribly violent Christmas music to bring you a story about zombies and fake tits. <clears throat> Implants vs. Zombies by Jason Mark Dear Barbara, as you know, I died last week. So you can imagine my surprise when I found myself a few days later clawing my way out of the earth. I didn't have much sense of self at the time, only an insatiable hunger, but I'm certain I looked a fright. Clothes hanging off me in states of accelerated disrepair, flesh ripped and torn in places, bones exposed, etc., hair matted with dirt, maggots and the like in evidence. A fright, I said? I must have looked a horror. And that hunger I mentioned, terrible. Terrific, even. I didn't know what I wanted until I saw it. A young woman running down the street. Blonde. Screaming. I chased her, of course, and eventually I realized that there were others like me also chasing her. I used the word chase, but it was hardly that, as all we could manage was a rotting shuffle. It was maddening, and most of us, me included, moaned loudly as we pursued. Somehow we caught her. I mean, she would disappear, we would follow her scent, then lose that, and sort of just maintain momentum of direction, and then she would reappear again. She'd hide behind a piece of cardboard or on top of a roof. I vaguely remember a crowd of us pounding against a glass door at the mall, until finally it broke and we poured in, reaching, clawing, grasping. There were pistol shots and firing of a shotgun. Heads exploded. It was rather exciting. There were people other than the blonde running this way and that as well, but many of us were focused only on the girl. Something about the way she ran. It was almost as ineffective as the way we ran. She seemed to fall down a lot. She sobbed more or less constantly, and I don't know how to put this. Uh, she was not built appropriately. It's hard to say how, though. She was uh, top-heavy? I mean, she was not fat. She was sort of skinny. When we finally got her, there wasn't much to go around. But her chest was not the right shape for the rest of her body. No matter how she ran or jumped or fell and got back up, her chest didn't really heave and bounce like it should have. 
I know it's cliché, Barbara, to say that in horror films the black guy always gets killed first, or in science fiction it's always the red shirts. But the whole time I and the others were chasing her, it seemed like days. There was this inevitability about it all. Like she deserved to die? I, I don't know if that's a very nice thing to say, but I've been dead for a week now, and I've only had one meal, the girl, and perhaps I'm a bit irritable, so forgive me. And I admit it, it could have been just a kind of zealousness on my part that made me so confident she'd be my dinner, eventually and soon. Such hunger. Another cliché, I'm afraid. It was a force of nature. We kept at it. All of us. What else could we do? Some of us became worse for wear. Clothes became more and more ripped to pieces. More and more of our graying flesh was torn from our bodies. Black ichor pouring from open wounds and so forth. Is a zebra a white horse with black stripes? Or a black horse with white stripes? Were we bodies with skeletons exposed, or skeletons holding up dripping tufts of decaying muscle? But we never stopped shuffling. A shotgun blast rang out in the night, and I don't know if any of us had enough sense left to make anything of it, except that it meant something warm and delicious was nearby. We went after it. Through a wooden fence, hammered into splinters. Through a field, thick with dead grass and desiccated bushes. Across a dried creek. Some fell. They continued to claw their way along. Eventually we came on to a scene. A campfire almost burnt out. That woman on her knees, sobbing. Shotgun in her lap. Bruises rising on her cheeks and arms. Shirt ripped half off. A man in front of her, pants pushed down to his thighs. A gigantic hole in his back that went straight through to where it had come from. His chest. The smell was invigorating. She obviously hadn't seen us, despite our moaning, until we were right on top of her. Some of us jumped on the blasted man, and the sounds of their ripping, gouging, chewing was nearly erotic. That is, erotic if your only emotion is hunger. I and a few others grabbed at the girl. She tried to run, but was blind in the night, tripped once again, and we had her. We had her, Barbara. We had every last morsel of her. Turns out her breasts were fake, and you might have laughed when one of us bit into them and they deflated sadly. I ate mostly from her leg and buttocks. One fellow seemed keen to crack her skull and eat her brains. I'm tempted to make jokes about blondes and brains, but you're a blonde, Barbara, I know, and never much appreciated that sort of thing. And since we're on the subject of you now, Barbara, I suppose I should get to the point of this letter. It's been a few days since I've fed, and even when I was eating that poor girl, my hunger was never slaked. Not even a little. If anything, I'm hungrier than ever. None of us has seen a living soul since that night, and so we're left to wander around and try to deal with our own brains rotting in our heads, decay robbing us of memory and reason. But I still have some memories, and I remember you. I remember once thinking how delicious you would be if I ever had to eat you, and now I think I do. I have to eat you. I'm coming to get you, Barbara. We now interrupt this interruption to bring you some words from our sponsors. 
Now, if you're a big, sweaty fan of Melania <laughs> Trump, but the CEO of Larco is, then you absolutely love the Christmas decorations she's put up in that rat and roach invested dump known as the White House. Of course, these are decorations that the Larco marketing department, consisting entirely of a myopic and unfortunately hairy woman named Cindy with chronic halitosis and a penchant for wearing paisley, called what it would look like if Tim Burton and Rob Zombie had a rape child and beat it daily until enrolled in the Werner Herzog School of Design and passed straight C's and became the first person ever to commit suicide by tinsel. But Cindy doesn't call the shots, the CEO does, and so when he told us to come up with something that would make Melania, quote, we emptied 200 bottles of vodka into a trash can, threw in a few spoonfuls of Sunny D, and got to work. And we have come up with something truly amazing. We have flipped the script. Look, any jerk-off can turn an Xmas tree upside down and shove it up into the ceiling like a triple mascara cam whore with an anal probe shoved up her chocolate love tunnel so she can entice a few pimple-faced keyboard jockeys to donate enough pennies to feed her five pounds a day Twizzler habit. But at Largo, we don't just get creative. We hold creativity down and drool on its face and laugh as we tell it to go ahead and thrash around all at once because that just makes the ride more fun. And yes, that sort of does describe the interview process we all had to go through to work for our current CEO. Thank you. Hashtag me too. So instead of decorating your tree with ornaments this year, how about you decorate your ornament with trees? Introducing the 10-foot Xmas ornament and bag of mini trees by Larco. No subterfuge here, friends. The name is exactly what we say it is. A glass ornament, 10 feet tall, and a bag of mini conifers to stick on top. Duct tape not included. Put some come all ye faithful as performed by Twisted Sister on the Alexa Echo, pour yourself some eggnog, and spend Xmas Eve celebrating the holy gift of high market consumerism the Largo way. Let the kids stick mini trees to the bottom while mom and dad stick them up high. Get out your tallest ladder and slap that angel tree to the top. Then sit back, listen to the eggnog gurgle and curdle in your distended belly, and enjoy the very picture of Xmas coziness. But is it Christian, you ask? Well, think about it this way. The 10-foot Xmas ornament and bag of mini trees was inspired by Melania Trump and the first broad husband recently endorsed a Senate candidate who was known to have a predilection for young girls, virgins, if you will, activities that might get them pregnant, so to speak, and a few hundred thousand manger-munching Alabamanians nearly voted that asshole to office, and calling them Alabamanians sort of sounds like Albanians who are all Middle Eastern, and if there's anything more Christian than pregnant virgins from the Middle East, we here at Largo sure as Christ don't know what it is. Hey, tell you what, since it's Xmas, if you go online and order the 10-foot Xmas ornament and bag of mini trees right now and use the code JBC at checkout, you pay the shipping fees, and we'll take care of the handling. Trust us, what was the annual Largo Xmas office party coming up pretty soon? If there's one thing we're all pretty good at here, it's handling. Hashtag don't tell HR. Celebrate Xmas in style. The 10-foot Xmas ornament and bag of mini trees by Largo. Elegant. Are you and other simple peasants in your 19th century European village terrified of the godless, murderous beasts roaming your streets, hiding in the shadows? As a part of the angry mob hell-bent on destroying the monster once and for all, don't you need something to thrust repeatedly in the air? Perhaps you would normally use a torch in this circumstance, but what about something a little more intimidating? Well, we've got just the thing. The Seymour EF-20D 15 by 15 inch 10-tine welded steel insulage fork with hardwood handle. It's not your average pitchfork. It's the sturdiest and most handsome tool of its kind on the market. Before you know it, you and your rabble of shrieking frightened townspeople will have chased the inhuman ghoul out into the firelight, and you'll be running your Seymour insulage fork through its chest, the envy of your family and friends. Make no mistake, this quality pitchfork isn't just for angry mobs. 
For instance, are you a prolific child murderer? Wondering how you're going to get all those severed baby heads into the back of your truck? Even the best snow shovel is just not fit for such a task. So try the Seymour EF-20D 15-inch by 15-inch tin-tine welded steel insulage fork with hardwood handle. The tines of this fork will easily slide through the gaping, gruesome faces of several baby heads at a time. And with a gentle swing, those baby heads will be flying into the back of your pickup with the greatest of ease. <laughs> or maybe your needs are more urgent. Perhaps you're trapped in the remote wilderness after being chased by a pack of bloodthirsty wolves. Nothing fins off hungry, red-eyed, snarling wolves better than a Seymour insulage. As the pack circles, drooling at the smell of your sweet flesh, you can be confident that you'll take at least one of the bastards down with you as you die. The Seymour EF-20D 15x15 10-tine welded steel insulage fork with hardwood handle. It can also be used to pile hay. <laughs> we now interrupt that which interrupted the previous interruption to bring you the end of this godforsaken episode. As an outro, I will read to you the intro of the book from which we've been reading. Then hopefully, you'll read the rest of it at some point. It is a short story collection entitled Still Life with Zombie by Jason Mark. <clears throat> Introduction. Zombies are a thing. Let's start with George Romero. He invented zombies. Maybe it was the voodoo and the Haitians who invented the word, but 1968's Night of the Living Dead was the world's first glimpse at the idea of mindless, shuffling monsters, hungry for human flesh. Don't believe me? Go look it up on the internet. Maybe that sounds glib, but it's that self-same internet largely responsible for the new zombie surge. There's a metaphor there, I'm sure of it. Talk about mindless, shuffling hordes. I like to think about the boys and girls who hooked together the first two nodes in the ARPANET back in 1969. They're in the lab, discussing that weird movie they saw last fall. There they are, thick glasses, white coats, one of them's called Barbara. She's a nice girl, owns one too many cats for normal society. Another one of them, Leonard or something, keeps muttering, They're coming to get you. She thinks he's talking about the Looney Bin people, the ones who take you away just because you sometimes sing silly songs to Pickles and Mr. Cuddlesworth. But he's not. Like Romero, he's a visionary. He's seen the future. He's talking about the millions of guys living in their mother's basements, playing video games, downloading pictures of Sarah Michelle Gellar, coming to get your memes. I'm sticking with the analogy. Richard Dawkins invented the word meme to describe a unit of cultural evolution. If eating a burger can be described poetically as eating cow, then eating ideas can be described as eating brains. That's synecdoche, or metonymy. I always get those confused. What's happened for alcoholics? Swimming in lakes of beer? How about paradise for fat kids? Free rain in a candy store? Flip the question on its head. Who would love it the most, living inside a brain the size of the entire interconnected planet? Zombies. It makes sense to me that the internet and zombies go together like, well, synecdoche and metonymy. You're all alone in a cyberspace packed to the last electron with other loners. Existential irony. 
just like the lone survivor trapped in a mall filled to the last gap with other meat bags. Hungry, shuffling meat bags. The internet gives us porn and violence, achievements and humiliation, catalogs of all the nothing we do all day long, and makes us proud of how ashamed we are of ourselves. Zombies takes us even deeper into our own hypothalamuses, where we dine on the brain matter of fight and flight. No need to choose between the two here. Just aim your virile shotgun, shoot as many of them in the head as you can, and when you're almost overwhelmed, run away. There's more to fight later. Always more. So zombies are a thing. And even if, especially if, you disagree with my hollow attempts at justifying the zombie apocalypse, you have to agree that zombies are. Whether it's George Romero, Max Brooks, Gabe Newall, or Robert Kirkman, zombies are awesome. Whether it's Tom Cinephile, Dick Gamer, or Harry Bookreader, zombies are fun. Whether it's you or me, Zombies are something to talk about. Shoot that viral shotgun. Zombies have evolved from word to idea to cliche to trope, another artifact in the great search for ourselves. Consider this. Some of us were born before the World Wide Web became a thing, and we'll always have that outside perspective to contextualize the Internet as a cultural phenomenon. But what's the Internet like for people who have never known it not to be? Do zombies know they're zombies? Do they care? In these stories I'm offering you, I'm not trying to examine the human condition within the context of survival horror. I'm trying to examine the human condition within the context of humdrum, boring, uneventful horror. In these stories, zombies are a thing, but so is being alive, and I'm not sure which is more terrifying. I hope all of our listeners enjoyed the show. If you'd like to buy Still Life with Zombie, just go to Amazon and you'll find that some fucking imposter has published the book. Jason, I missed you this week, even though turns out you made the largest contribution to this show. Um, I'll see you soon. Everybody, rate and review us. Five stars only, please, or a Yuletide Shags will fuck your undead mom. Jesus Undead Christ! Hello there. My name's Bob. I'm here to talk about something that's important to your health. Your health. 
You see, if you don't get proper exercise, you put yourself at higher risk of having a stroke. That's why I'm here to tell you about a brand new product that makes exercising sleazy. It's the Nordic Track X9i Incline Trainer Treadmill. It's got buttons and bleeps and bloops that make me feel tired just looking at it. I'll tell you what, I'll give it a try right now and tell you how it feels. Jesus. A dairy cow wearing a top hat, blowing a rape whistle, standing on top of a school bus. What? That dollar wasn't five cents. I still leave I'm having a broke. Uh, Tony Danza wearing hooker makeup in pigtails, eating toilet water, rat soup in county jail. <laughs>